Now we can start. Uh, next, Angelina is Chris Jenkins. He's a violinist. He's performed with New York Philharmonic as well as in several Broadway productions. He's also an associate dean at Oberlin College and Conservatory. Thank you for being here. And lastly is Catherine Metz. She's an associate assistant professor of ethnomusicology at Oberlin College and Conservatory. She was formerly the manager of community and family programs at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum and also a musician. So thank you for being here. So I'd like to start with something that's a very large topic, but when researching it, I kept coming across writings on Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is the Ode to Joy, which I know we've all heard at some point in our life. And what struck me, and I figured this would be a good jumping off point, was how many ways this particular piece of music has been used in the political sphere. So Beethoven wrote this piece in celebration of universal brotherhood. But it was also a piece celebrated by Adolf Hitler, and it was played repeatedly in Nazi Germany. Then it was used by the United Team of Germany at the Olympics during the Cold War. It was also used during the apartheid regime in Rhodesia as its national anthem, which now is now Zimbabwe. And it's now the current anthem of, the current anthem of the European Union is now based on this piece of music. Uh, Rebecca Schmid, who wrote in the Listen magazine, said that, quote, it has been swallowed by every ideology. It has been appropriated for one political and social statement after another. So this raises a question about music and when it's used diplomatically and politically, how do we ensure that art is used for good and to bring us together? Uh, and Chris, you were kind of volunteered to start this conversation. Sure. Uh, I'm so glad that you mentioned all those aspects of that particular piece uh, because actually it plays really well into what I was thinking I might mention about this notion of music as a communication tool. So in our introductory remarks, we heard actually the no this notion that music is powerful. Music helps people communicate. And certainly as a music educator, something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and have always thought about for a long time is um, the kind of personal uh, growth and professional growth that students can achieve through music performance, music training, the value of educating them in music. Because of course, as an educator of music, I have to ask myself, why are we doing this? What is the point? And I always I have gone back to the kind of values that I, s I would like to imagine our students are gaining, the kind of people they are becoming. Certainly for any type of music, Western or otherwise, the development of a certain kind of emotional sensitivity, which is rare and valuable. Um, the ability to communicate both verbally and non-verbally with others and to appreciate others' feelings and emotions. Um, the ability to be, to be part of a team, the ability to take and give instruction effectively, the, the, the ability to coordinate, all those things are things that I see and always have seen students gain from mu music instruction both in Western styles of music and other styles of music. Um, but there's another side to music which I think is totally overlooked, um, which is that mu uh, mu music is a medium of communication, which is to say it's a tool. It's a tool like any other method we have of communicating. So as a tool, it's also, in, uh, in addition to uh, having the value of being able to transmit certain kinds of um, skills, abilities, and feelings, it's also morally neutral as a tool. And as, as uh, any tool that's mor morally neutral in communication, it can be used for good or for evil. And as you mentioned, we certainly see this in the use of music by the National Socialists, 
uh, in the use of music by white supremacists to transmit their ideas. It's a useful tool for communicating ideas wherein the moral value of that music must rest upon our judgment of what those ideas are. Uh, and I say this coming from a perspective of someone who's taken students to the Middle East quite frequently. I've taught in uh, Afghanistan at the uh, Afghan National Institute of Music in Pakistan, uh, in uh, Palestine, where I was a deputy director of a music school of Western music, that is, for a year, and uh, as, as, as the director of my project at Oberlin, wherein I bring students to Jordan every year to uh, perform and teach in Amman. So in those roles, I've become keenly aware of the fact that when I bring students to other parts of the world, in particular to teach our styles of classical music as we know them in, in America, and in Europe, there are particular values and attitudes that come along with that. And some of those values and attitudes are friendly and some of them are hostile. But I would suggest that in particular, uh, at the very least, we have to be concerned with ideas of, first of all, um, cultural colonialism when we try to export our music uh, and also cultural appropriation when we try to engage in the music of others. And those are really thorny issues, and I think they don't really get uh, enough consideration or uh, deliberation in our field. Catherine or Angeline, want jump in? Um, well, I would love to chime in with sort of, I concur <laughs> with Chris wholeheartedly, um, but it's a real, it's a real challenge being able to determine because once that music has been out there either in score format or you've heard it or it's on the radio or you have a recording of it, it's it's free for the taking. Um, and I'll remind you or inform you if you don't already know that music is used as a tool for torture um, in Guantanamo. Um, so uh, there's a great musicologist in um, either Columbia or NYU, I'm sorry that I get them confused, <laughs> um, named Suzanne Cusick who has um, actually spent time in Guantanamo with prisoners and um, investigated the physical uh, trauma that use extreme volumes of music or re repeated music have had on those prisoners who have never been tried for their crimes um, or for their alleged crimes, I should ask. So I think it's a, or to add, it's, it's, it's a, it is a real challenge because it can be an, a really useful tool for communication but can also be used for, for, for evil and not, mm -hmm. and not just for good. And I don't think that there's a way to control it, especially since it plays such a role in the propaganda machine, even in the good way, to try to make us feel good about things. There's a reason why there, uh, you know, a, a, a moment comes in in the movie Love Actually and we all just want to weep, right? And, it's, and it's, this, it's this thing that has, that has such power to create affect. Um, so how we're able to to manipulate or de determine that is is really up to up to any of the consumers or the listeners. Um, we just I think need to be very much aware, and I think that with that, just as you mentioned, cultural colonialism or cultural appropriation, if you are an ar a recorded artist who you discover that your music is being used for torture in Guantanamo, um, there are ways that you can make that make that known and there are ways that you can combat that. So I feel like it's also incumbent upon the recording artists or the folks who have that, that knowledge or that information. Yeah, I think I just want to clarify, uh, we're basically talking about uh, music of the public domain when, um, when Drew had mentioned Beethoven and when, when uh, Catherine was referring to music that's free for the taking once it's out there. Um, public domain, essentially if it's after 1923 in this country, then in essence, um, music 
particularly the score, that the musical composition, is, can be used. Um, so we don't really have that much control over how it's uh, used or interpreted sometimes as uh, composers who, like Beethoven, who uh, are past that life plus 70 mark. <laughs> he might be rolling over somewhere else. But um, as far as recordings, it's very interesting because um, uh, a while ago, um, this particular uh, Beethoven uh, symphony, number nine, it was used in a recording, a very obscure part where most people would not recognize it. Probably everybody in this room would recognize it because you're such um, you know, experts in classical music, especially Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Uh, but it was used in a popular, popular music. Um, specifically, it was before Michael, jo uh, Michael Jackson's, uh, anybody can guess, uh, Free Willy? Sound familiar? Well, anyway, he did appropriate that, but it wasn't the score. It wasn't. It wasn't Beethoven. Uh, Beethoven's score. It wasn't that he re-recorded it. He actually took a recording of that, um, perhaps at this, at the same label. But um, it just so happens that oh, nobody probably would notice that obscure part that needs an intro to that. Um, but the story goes that the, con the conductor of this particular orchestra uh, heard that somehow his son or uh, youngster had heard, heard that excerpt being played maybe in the video or so and said, I know that orchestra. That's my orchestra. And that happened to be the Cleveland Orchestra. And so, that and so well, it ended up being a very expensive settlement. <laughs> but those are some ways that, uh, that, that artists can actually uh, get that control. And that has to do with copyright, U.S. copyright. So what we're talking about there is actually not the actual composition that Beethoven wrote, but actually the musical recording, so uh, the musical sound recording. So that, that is something that artists can do to control their sound and how it's appropriated mm. or not. Well, Chris, I'm glad you brought up music being used as a tool, and this is obviously music as political diplomacy. There's a couple instances in history that I'd, I'd like to touch on, and one of those was in the 50s through the 70s, the U.S. State Department created a, a, a jazz ambassadors program, and this was prominent jazz musicians from the U.S., as well, Gillespie, Duke Ellington, Dave Rubeck. They traveled all parts of the globe as kind of goodwill ambassadors for the U.S., and um, they were meant to spread our message of U.S. culture to other parts of the world. And in retrospect, there's been some kind of mixed reviews of this and whether our culture at home was so great that we needed to be spreading it to other parts of the world. Um, one, I want to know, what does that say about a nation or a government to fund something like that? It seems like it'd be great for us to be paying musicians to go abroad and travel and spread our message, but also what type of message we're spreading. Uh, so I, I guess I'm happy to address that in, in part because I have re indeed received lots of State Department funding to bring students to Overland. The U.S. Embassy in Oman has sponsored uh, us to bring students there to teach and perform uh, in Jordan for about four years. And, I'm, I, you know, I'm certainly appreciative of that funding, principally because the value for my students to have an experience in the Middle East in a country they would not ordinarily go uh, frankly, I, I feel combats Islamophobia here. I think it's a good use of that money. But I think it's okay for us to be clear-eyed about why countries in general engage in this kind of messaging. It's certainly um, a way to use soft power to uh, promote our values, but also our 
interests. And I'm not just uh, trying to accuse the State Department of doing this in a malign kind of way. I think every country does this because it's in their interest and that's the function of a, of a foreign ministry. Um, but, you know, it, but, uh, so in particular, thinking about Louis Armstrong, there are obviously lots of issues there because uh, he himself was impugned by fellow jazz artists for engaging in this activity, which was meant to communicate to other countries that we were a free and open democracy when in fact, obviously, African-Americans were being oppressed in the various ways in which they were between 1950 and 1970. Uh, and many other artists felt that he was betraying them uh, by presenting a false image of the American scene. So, you know, I think we have to be certainly careful whenever we take our own uh, values and music abroad as to what kind of image we're portraying, whether it's authentic, whether it's being interpreted in the way that we want it to be interpreted. Uh, I think those are really difficult issues and that they're generally not addressed substantively in most cross-cultural music collaborations. Um, I would add that Brazil had a similar issue during the, sim during the same time period um, with the artist Carmen Miranda, who gained in popularity as Latin music sort of moved across the globe. Um, and she's from Brazil, uh, and she became known as the, the, you know, the girl with the banana <laughs> hat, if those of you who remember. Um, and while the s Brazil, which was undergoing a pretty significant uh, military dictatorship, <laughs> that was not friendly, shall we say, um, actually was excited that she had been embraced by Hollywood because she can be ambas an ambassador for all of the wonderful tropical awesomeness that is Brazil. Um, but she was seen as a traitor to her people. So while it was not necessarily as overt um, a uh, an overt policy or an overt diplomacy on the part of the, the State Department of Brazil, it certainly became more or less the same kind of thing as she was advocating for Brazil and Brazilian culture, which she sort of reduced to these tropical sound bites and these tropical styles. And upon return, after being in the United States for several years, um, she was she was completely ostracized. Uh, and no one consumed her music and no one went to her concerts. And people, even though she was wildly famous, people wouldn't even say hi to her on the streets. Um, and she ended up sort of uh, going back to the United States in, in a bout of depression. So it's really interesting how we can use this in both official capacities, but also unofficial capacities. Um, and you see this with, with all kinds of, all kinds of, especially whenever there is some kind of a military dictatorship or there is a communist government, you'll see you trying to use the music as a form of propaganda, whether wittingly or unwittingly, right? Whether an actual um, agent of the state or not. So should all musicians worry about funding from <laughs> governmental bodies? I mean, that seems like it'd be a really great opportunity if you know, you're getting paid to travel and spread your, your craft, but. But this is the case for funding for any artist from any source, <laughs> mm -hmm. especially uh, the larger the source, the more, the more fraught that is, right? Of course, you know, as an artist, you have to, you're obligated to seek out funding from uh, whomever is best positioned to support you, and they may have a certain mandate or not for how you conduct yourself and what you say. So in this way also, music is almost always politicized because it's always funded from somewhere. Even in terms of what orchestras program, you know, a very simple version of that in any city has to do with who is uh, donating to the orchestra, who's funding it, who's buying tickets. 
their taste will determine what the orchestra programs, just for pure financial reasons. And similarly, any corporation that funds any musical venture, if they have a particular view that they insist upon, then they may be highlighted. So it's, it's not that distinct from what happens domestically. I think that does happen with education in particular. And my own experience, I, on the upside, I think that there's a lot of positiveness to it. Uh, we can see some models outside of the country. I, I actually studied abroad in Paris, at the Paris Conservatory, where the education there is essentially free if you can get in. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that money can't buy, a uh, really, really fabulous education that would cost lots of money here. Um, whereas here, we will off offset that, as, as you probably all well know, through a lot of private funding. So um, I think there's a lot of pluses and minuses that we can learn from each other through that, but... Um oh, uh, well, I was just going to add that um, uh, in 2001, I received a Freeman Asia grant through the Institute of International Education, which is sort of like a mini Fulbright to study music in Indonesia, in, in Bali. and. Um, uh, several months later, September 11th happened, and my caseworker, with whom I wrote my grant report, called me and asked if I would be willing to be part of a, a full-page ad in the New York Times, because shortly after 9-11, um, President Bush slashed funding to a number of uh, state-sponsored uh, arts organizations and arts funders, everything from the NEH to the NEA to um, and even some things that weren't necessarily involved with the arts, like the SSRC, um, the Social Science Research Council, et cetera. And the title on the ad said, uh, International Education is the Best Investment in Homeland Security. Because what a lot of Americans don't know is they took a lot of that funding, that state-sponsored funding that helps um, promote these diplomatic uh, cultural exchanges around the world uh, to help found the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so this was a form of resistance a very <laughs> by, um, by, a, by a, a lot of really revered uh, organizations that have been state-sponsored specifically for these purposes. So I found that to be, I was, I was happy to be a part of it, but I also was a little bit nervous, right? <laughs> Having my picture and my name on this advertisement well, that is, was clearly saying, um, give it flipping a, a proverbial bird to, um, to, <laughs> to President Bush and his administration. And, you know, that's a great example, I think, of how, you know, yeah, in general, and, and I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong, it's a, that's a political viewpoint, but um, funding can go towards soft power or hard power, literally. It can appear in this line item or that line item, but it's going to go towards some type of power because that's what government is literally for in many ways. Um, so, you know, I think it's just incumbent upon us as artists to be aware of who's funding us and why and what their expectations are and to make sure that our values actually align with those expectations. Everybody voted today, right? Yes. <laughs> well, we're talking about uh, state funding and supporting artists. There's a, been a couple of recent examples of musicians in diplomatic roles. And we talked about this before the forum, but um, to from 2003 to 2008, uh, Gilberto Gil was uh, a Brazilian singer, songwriter, and guitarist. He was the uh, culture minister in Brazil. And in 2012, Senegalese musician Yasuna Dur was minister of tourism for his country. Um, just wondering some input. Both these musicians were already very political before these appointments, but does this add a new legitimacy to their work now that they're sanctioned by the state with this high-profile position? Or does it increase their reach, or does it? Do, are they seen as 
propaganda pieces now. I'm, I imagine it's a little bit of both. Um, for those of you who don't know, Gilberto Gil and Catano Velozu were two of the sort of the founders of the Tropicalia uh, music movement in Brazil um, in the late 1960s, which was seen as incredibly subversive. It used this idea of cultural cannibalism, the sort of thing that we can, sort of all the different musics that we ingest, we can create this new style um, that is very distinctly Brazilian, even if we borrowed it from the United States or from England or from other places. Um, and because the military dictatorship in Brazil was so strong, Gilberto Gil and Catano Veloso had to go on um, sort of a self-imposed exile to England for many, many years. So when Gil accepted that position, there was both admiration as well as disgust for those exact reasons, because is it propaganda? Is he now a tool of the state? Sure, we don't have a military dictatorship anymore, but now you're working for the very people that had opposed you, whereas uh, some also argued it's amazing that you have a minister of culture as it were, right? Uh, trying not to borrow too heavily from dystopian uh, fiction. Um, <laughs> but, you know, w the United States is one of the very few uh, countries, nations in this world that doesn't have some kind of a regular representative um, in culture for to, to the United Nations, for example, or sort of in our in our government. So the same with Yusun Nador, who you might be familiar with. He was featured on Sting's song, The Yellow Rose Desert, I'm Losing It. It's in there somewhere. Um, and he's a Wolof musician, and it was a very similar thing. So it's kind of a challenge because they have to straddle both of those lines. And I think it also has to do with what do you use your power for or toward? And how subversive can you be in that position or overt? And what kind of trouble does it get you into? Uh, Gilles eventually realized that this it wasn't working. And, and he the reason that he quit <laughs> was because he said, this is, you're not really listening to me and what I'm advocating for, for my nation and for diplomacy internationally for Brazil. Um, and we can see sort of how the, the focus of that and, and the newfound resentment of musicians in Brazil right now with their current president, who has expressed some um, negative opinions about m many things. <laughs> I'll be diplomatic. You mentioned that we don't have <laughs> someone in that minister of culture role here in the states. Any reason why? Any theories on or what we could do to remedy that? Well, so uh, within the State Department, there is the Bureau for Educational and Cultural Affairs (ECA), which uh, you know is a pretty well reputed uh, bureau. Um, in terms of our having a Representative at the UN for culture. I'm I'm not aware that we do, but I, I'm uh, that's not something I know with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, apparently we d we don't have one, which I could imagine um, for a variety of reasons. Our general um, historical antipathy towards the UN, perhaps, might have something to do, have something to do with that. Um, yeah, but you know, in general, I think. Certainly for me, all the interactions that I've had with state when it came to their funding were really positive. Uh, I never felt personally that I was being manipulated or forced to say something that I didn't believe in when I was overseas. And I, I, I've been to, with, uh, through state, I've been to Pakistan, Colombia, uh, and, and, and Jordan. And, um, and certainly been in some actually relatively dangerous situations. I visited a police station that had been bombed out by drug gangs. Uh, to appear on the radio station in Colombia, actually. And I, I always felt that I was well-treated, that I was representing still my values, but I was certainly aware that the reason I was there had to do with uh, parties that were far above me and that I was 
certainly being uh, treated as a communication tool. So again, you know, I think my message is uh, if, if you're going to be used as a tool politically, which is fine as a musician, we're often being used for, by someone for something most of the time. If you're going to be used as a tool politically, be aware who it is and why and whether you agree with them and whether their values align with yours. We've been talking for almost a half an hour already. It's flying by. Uh, we open it up to the audience for questions. Uh, feel free to line up at this microphone. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question, but yeah, anything you have for the panelists, feel free to line up. Otherwise, we'll keep going. Uh, while we're talking about the UN, Angeline, you've performed all over the world, and you've performed at the UN. And I want to know, we kind of talked about who's programming the pieces. Were, you know, Was there extra weight behind those performances because of the diplomatic setting you were in? Well, uh, I've um, performed in various diplomatic settings at the State Department as well uh, several times. Um, and for the benefit of the United Nations, especially their women's organization. So uh, for me, there is often, as Chris had mentioned too, a, a type of purpose in my heart as far as wh why I'm doing these particular events um, at the UN, particularly when it was raising AIDS awareness and, and that type of situation. And I have to say also, um, as citizens, um, w we're always representing um, our country, me in particular, it's also Cleveland. I love Cleveland and Cleveland State University and I have even taken some students abroad where um, they've performed and studied and, and um, they're excellent ambassadors. And so it doesn't have to be in a formal situation, but there's a lot of this crossover with music, particularly because, oh. <laughs> <laughs> particularly because it's, there's a saying that, um, that music expresses what words cannot. And I think with that, a lot of even including our first topic with, with Beethoven, there's a lot of things in there that can be expressed, that can be felt. But in a political situation, it doesn't have to be said. Mm -hmm. So in many, many instances, it's, it's, it's safe in, in some regards. Music is safe, unless sometimes the lyrics can be quite biting. But essentially, it can be a, a really an enormous cultural exchange and promotion tool for for people-to-people -people ambassadorship. And I think that's that's really the bright side to that because in many ways we're known for our uh, our, our culture. And what is that culture? I mean, it, it, a lot of it has to do with appropriation, yes, but all over the world we have that. Um, and I'm thinking um, a lot of popular music that's played today, even in the, in the rock hall from your background, it's, it's not who we, we think we usually associate that music with is where it actually originated. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that can be done that are really good because otherwise, if it didn't have that type of appropriation, a lot of times these things would not be known. There are a lot of uh, old composers, um, you've heard of Franz Liszt, but maybe you w would not have known that um, Schubert would have remained a r an unknown composer but for transcriptions that Franz Liszt gave to the public or those type of things. So uh, there, there's instances where appropriation is all right. And um, I think as, as long as we're using that mechanism for good, I think that's our message here, that it's, it can be done very, very well. Yeah. Question from the audience, sir. Yes, uh, what feedback have you gotten from international students regarding this topic? This is open to all of you. Uh, which topic? Music as an as ambassadorship. I mean, how 
we have used it and how it's affected their countries. How our culture is spread through yeah. student exchange yeah. and your experiences with that? Angelina and Chris, I think you both have traveled with students right. abroad. So, I, you know, again, I guess going back to my original theme of music as a tool, I found it to be a really effective tool in creating relationships, especially on the individual level, uh, and, and particularly in terms of, of teaching and just communicating values. Um, certainly watching my students uh, work with uh, individual students or groups of students in Jordan, for example, is really inspiring because uh, particularly if they don't speak the same language, um, you know, it's a way for them to connect and to, to bond, and it's really effective, and it's really great to see. Yes, I agree. It's, it's a really great way to bond because music, as a lot of people say, is a universal language, and it goes beyond words. And a lot of the uh, cla Western classical music training is pretty universal as far as the type of notation that we use and, and all that, so it goes beyond actual... Um, verbal language. So I think for that, uh, it's, it's very interesting that a lot of students from different countries would like to study here, study music, and in fact we're, we're in the United States appropriating U European music, this is Western classical music. So, um, so it's, for me it's, it's a very interesting situation because we're very well known. We have uh, world's top orchestras right here in our backyard is, is known for playing a certain type of music which wasn't originally from from Cleveland, so <laughs> so I think um, how we're seen is it's it's we have other tools too that 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 students can use, and also for our students to go abroad, uh, I agree with what what's happened before too. International education is is priceless; it's really important. And so part of that exchange, as ed responsibility as educators, is to actually open people's eyes so they can see that we have so much more in common than we have differences. Uh, yeah, I actually just had a meeting with a student today who wanted me to sponsor him for his winter term in Oberlin. Students have to do three out of four winter terms, which is in January where they have to do uh, um, embark on some kind of a project or take a class, those kinds of things. And this student is from Beijing, um, and he is a burgeoning hip-hop artist there in Chinese, and he wanted to work on a, on a mixtape um, for his winter project, his winter term project. and. When we started our conversation, I asked him, "So who do you like? Who do you listen to?" I said, and he just was like, "Oh my gosh!" It was, it was so much pressure. I said, "Okay, how about a new artist and perhaps an old school artist?" Keep in mind, the kid was born in um, <laughs> in the year two thousand one, so yeah. that kind of gives you a little bit of a framework. Um, but he said, for new school, he likes Kendrick Lamar, and for old school, old school. I was thinking a little <laughs> older than this, but he likes Outkast. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I think about this because, especially after working for nine years at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, when, when I, I lived in Spain f for a while many years ago, I've lived in Peru on and off for many years, and the United States is often seen as a place that doesn't have any culture because we're so young, we're so new, like we didn't have the Incas, you know, we don't have, we didn't have the Arabs building like half of Spain <laughs> 2,000 years ago, right? So we're, we're not cultured. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, we certainly have really unique spins on a lot of other things that we may have sort of incorporated or appropriated, such as, for example, Western uh, art, classical music from Europe. But um, rock and roll is very American. It is. It reflects everything. It has to do with our. It has to do with race and class, and it is a black music that comes from 
the south of this country under incredibly um, trying circumstances. And the fact that that moved through all the way through, blah, 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 we've got, you know, Grandmaster Flash, and then we've got Outcast, and we've got a kid in China listening to Kendrick Lamar. Um, I think that's powerful and amazing and that, that, that that kid then decided to come to a small liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, um, to really pursue this passion in addition to his philosophy and politics majors. Um, so I think that there's a lot to be said for students who um, do use music as diplomacy and as different forms, as a different kind of a tool, and to understand um, distinct cultures. Um, I, I, uh, the ethnomusicologist in me is like, well, music's not really a universal language because actually, right, but right. in the grand scheme of things, it certainly <laughs> is a human universal um, almost in you know 99% of the globe, whether there's a word for it or not, um, and it's really can be such a fruitful tool in that space, and I think that students respond really, really positively on both sides, whether we're taking kids elsewhere or whether we're bringing kids here. And they're fascinating, and we always, everyone complains about the subsequent generations, but there's also so much richness in each one of those generations, so I will not complain about them. They're awesome. There's one element of that I think that's really interesting, which is hip-hop is a fundamentally subversive art form. <laughs> subversively, uh, uh, rather, a f uh, fundamentally a resistant art form, and then it resists power structures. So then the question would be, could a student like that go back, and sorry, I'm gonna, I'll say something that'll probably get this censored in some part of the world. Um, could a student like that go back to Beijing and make a rap about how great the Chinese government is, <laughs> and how much they appreciate censorship? I don't think so, because it's fundamentally at odds with the values mm -hmm. of hip hop. That's the, that is the definition of soft power and the exportation of American values, for better or worse. That's what it is. I, I actually did ask him that. I said, so what are you going to do? He said, well, some things will be recorded in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another question? Oh, I can't touch that. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm not that tall. I got to go do this. Thank you. Yeah. So no, that sounds worse. Is that, is that better? Okay. So uh, first I want to... <laughs> I think this is a great panel. M the moderation is fantastic, and it's good to see Cleveland State and, and Oberlin uh, here. Um, so I want to ask a little bit of a more uh, subversive or controversial question to flip it around. It flip it around. So we've been talking about music as forms of engagement, right? So we also know that artists in the world withhold their art and withhold their performances based on their values. Um, so I'm not asking you for your specific political opinion, but could you talk about the role uh, of the, the moral and political role of the artists globally? Because we have many, many examples of artists that cross picket lines internationally and perform in countries um, uh, where there's a boycott or where their values are being violated. We do that in the United States when the state of North Carolina passed its discriminatory laws. So. What what is the role of the artist internationally and globally? Like, how do you how do you uh, match your values with the politics and artists who decide that they don't want to play in places and countries that violate their their values? Thanks. <laughs> controversial, controversial question. Let's take it first. No, yeah, it's it that it's so hard. And of course, I'm only thinking of the negative ones. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Paul Simon effect. Um, with Graceland uh, during apartheid in South Africa, or Beyonce performing um, for kings in, in, in Saudi Arabian kings in um, Qatar or Dubai. Uh, and I'm, 
I'm seeing all the folks that I perhaps, I, I personally might question their ethical or moral judgment in supporting the particular regimes or systems of oppression that they did through their performances. Um, I, and those are the ones that spring to mind far more easily for me than those who um, act as agents of resistance or who uh, withhold their art, of which I, I know there are many. Um, but it's so interesting, that speaks to the power of the art, right, and the music, that we would be so offended that Paul Simon did what he did during during that time period. Now we're like, oh, Great Slant, it's an amazing album, and and Ladysmith Black Mombazo is is blew up because of him, and um, so it's. I think there's some pretty significant challenges, but I also think it really does demonstrate sort of how that can be <laughs> such a tool when it's just it's the thing that we can't even capture. The thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is it's a music museum, but how do you have a music museum, right? You're just looking at a bunch of stuff. <laughs> that somebody played or somebody wore or somebody sweat upon or somebody wrote, you know, down. It's a weird idea. And yet it's, it's a, such an ephemeral thing that such a, it's, it's hard to pin down. So um, I think that, I that it's, it's such a fascinating role that a musician has and how much more power they wield than they even understand. Um, and I m might suggest somebody who, who, who certainly, speaking of hip-hop, subverted the system, and Kendrick Lamar's performance, the, what he did on the Grammys uh, in 2015? Anybody? <laughs> Maybe? Sure? Ish? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw that performance, but he was basically kind of gave a big fat um, no thank you Grammys, but, but also thank you and pay attention to me uh, addressing the issue of incarcerated black men in this nation um, with uh, It's Gonna Be All Right, which in turn was turned into a civil rights anthem right here in Cleveland, Ohio at the Black Lives, at the inaugural Black Lives Matter conference um, where that was a chant that the students in at the corners of uh, East 22nd and Euclid on the CSU campus chanted um, when a young man was arrested. So I think that there's there are different kinds of power. But in terms of resisting and pulling it back, that's the thing I can't even I can't even bring to mind right now. Yeah, speaking of the Grammys, it reminds me of last year when we had this Me Too movement, and they uh, I I guess uh, really made it a women's empowerment type of situation where I myself as a as a as a woman. Um, was really very touched. There are certain things that I, I felt like I had experienced, but didn't know that, uh, couldn't put something on it. And then t until I saw something like that through music that uh, really created some, some types of expression within. And I think music is really, really powerful. It can really awaken the soul in so many different ways. Um, although we were talking about responsibility here, but there's, there's a lot of things that have to do with self-expression and just understanding not just one another, but oneself and where one, one, one is. And I think m music like the Grammys, it can be used uh, on such a level that, that reaches so many different people um, through the power of media uh, immediately. And so something like that, a platform like that is, is, is not taken lightly. And I know the folks at the Grammys, that they, they put on certain shows uh, with a lot of thought behind it. And sometimes um, for the purpose of creating some, some uh, um, a forum to express different points of views. Yeah. I would just say, um, you know, I think there's certainly a notion that musicians are, are generally liberal, generally leftist, and I think that's pretty much true, but it's also often kind of reflexive 
and to some extent an afterthought because um, there's a not inconsiderable proportion of musicians who are concerned uh, first with their craft, first and foremost, and second of all with selling and marketing it, and then values are really kind of a distant third. I don't mean that I as an insult to musicians. I am a musician. We are musicians here. You know, I totally understand where that comes from because we spend hours in the practice room perfecting just craft and then trying to make some kind of living by selling it. So that's just the necessity of it. But we're not also taught really to think that carefully about our values. That's not an integral part of the training that we, we get in conservatories. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong either. The training is what it is to make us the best players we can be. But um, I would just say, you know, it's certainly there are, have been instances where artists take a stand against various types of apartheid uh, in South Africa or wherever else it might be. And when that happens, it's encouraging, but I think it happens less frequently than it probably should. In, in large part because economics dictate how music is marketed and sold, and uh, we, we musicians don't think as carefully about our values as we could or should. And I think, you know, to that, should we actually use music in that purpose? Should we actually think about it that way? Or is it something that should be more on the pure side? It's music for music versus music for a political stance. Next question. Um, hi, my name's Ellen. I'm super happy to be here. Uh, this is my first time, so thanks for doing this. This is a really cool event. And, um, Come back next month? Yeah, I will. <laughs> I totally will. I've gone to City Club events, but the first time here at Happy Dog, I didn't get to eat a hot dog at my last City Club event, so this makes a big <laughs> difference. Um, so my question kind of piggybacks off of the last question asked in this whole discussion. Um, when we were all talking about this, it kind of came to mind a specific song by MIA called Borders and a, a video that was associated with it um, around the refugee crisis. And um, to your last comment, that was kind of where my head was at was, um, you know, I think there's this incredible power associated with music and its accessibility uh, in the world today. And um, pushing specific agendas, I feel like, is a really powerful and strong and influential thing but I'm also a huge proponent for formulating your own opinions um, of everything that's ex you know experienced in the world around you. And I don't know, I'm kind of like in this weird mixed area of like, is it more socially responsible of an artist to like withhold that extreme power and like let the public form their opinions for themselves? Because as you stated, a, a lot of musicians are, you know, kind of more specifically liberal. But if it was to be on the opposing end, would we feel as strongly about supporting these musicians in in the way that they push these specific agendas? Good question. <laughs> Should the message be so overt? Should <laughs> these creative minds withhold that political viewpoint? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think it, it has a place for everybody. And, and then again, a lot of the music that we're dealing with, unless you really listen to the lyrics, you, I mean, you, sometimes you just love that tune, that rhythm, that, that m beautiful melody, the underlying harmonies. And then it's like, oh, what is this about? Mm -hmm. Then you, you start to peel off the layers. But then again, uh, when it's dealing with certain, certain, well, whether it be poetry or lyrics, sometimes that's also very unclear too. So for me, I think it's really important to to not withhold. I don't, I don't know who actually withholds their music in that sense. Um, it's usually quite the opposite, trying to find a voice of expression. 
Uh, Gil Scott Heron is the, one of the first people that pops in my head for um, for a musical activist in in this nation, um, and you know from a rich tradition of of folk and and soul music in our country, and I don't. It, it's funny because the other thing that popped in my head was uh, anthems, um, and so many uh, countries hire composers to create propaganda music that promotes that agenda. Um, and if you ever, if you can, you should go on to Spotify or your preferred streaming platform um, or to your library to borrow a CD um, and listen to um, national anthems because they all kind of sound the same um, and they don't usually have traits from that nation. They don't usually have, I don't know, an accordion from Germany or a sitar from India or, <laughs> or <laughs> right, or, or, or um, uh, a chora from, from Ghana, right? They're very um, European sounding um, and they're meant to, and they're very militaristic and they're very pipe and, it's called pipe and tabor, right? This idea of like do 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 with the, with the drums at the, at the beginning of, of the Revolutionary War. Um, and, and it's interesting because artists MIA certainly is quite overt in her support of, of very particular agendas in almost everything that she has ever done. She also has the power to do that because she has the cash and she can like do stuff like that. <laughs> and she can go out in the desert and have this like wild, beautiful, amazing um, uh, music video. Um, and, and yay for her, but not everybody necessarily has that power. So what are other ways that you can sort of, su sort of um, subvert the machine or even enforce the machine? Right? I think that there are far more voices that you would imagine that are actually perhaps on the conservative end. We do presume sort of a particular liberal progressive agenda with musicians just because we want to be able to do what we want and play what we want and, and make the music that we want. Um, I worked the RNC uh, when I was at the Rock Hall. I was uh, in charge of foreign media. And um, there are a number of musical situations that were quite conservative that really blew my mind, impressed me for their odd Raffi-like creativity. Um, and I mean, I love, love me some Raffi, but <laughs> small blonde girls singing it on the plaza of the Rock Hall is just <laughs> fascinating and an ethnomusicological study in and of itself. Um, but I really think that we could, it can go, it can go all of the ways, right? And that's a really terrible answer to you, Alan, <laughs> because it's certainly, it's very unfair to what music can do and who's got the power to do what, because MIA... Homegirl is empowered. <laughs> so, so, you know, when we talk about activism in general in any country, we're generally talking about those who are disempowered. In, in this country, that tends to be historically the left, but in other countries, it's, it's not the left, it's, it's the right. But all the same, it's those who don't have access to traditional power structures to, to enforce their, or rather, to communicate their message or enforce what they think needs to be uh, enforced. So uh, by, th by that token, music seems like a natural home for activism because it's a place where subversive messages can be more easily communicated uh, and also can be subtly communicated or encoded to avoid censorship. Uh, so from that perspective, that I, I think that's partly why we have so many instances of, of, of musical uh, activism in the U.S., also, again, because of our traditional politics, I think most of those activists have been on the left. It's hard to think of activists on the right who have been musicians. Somehow... Uh, <coughs> Kid Rock. Yeah, Kid Rock was... 
the first person who came to mind. But again, that doesn't actually feel super, apologies to Kid Rock. I'm sorry, Kid Rock. It doesn't feel super authentic because, you know, I mean, certainly, yes, he has carved out a space for those who love rock rap and also revere the Confederate flag. That's true. But I think he just saw a gap in the market. I don't think he necessarily <laughs> thought in his heart, God, I wish there was a space for my people. I don't think that happened. <laughs> Maybe it did. And in, case, in that case, I really apologize to Kid Rock. But, you know, I think that was more of a marketing decision. Generally, most of the activism we, we've seen musically is on the left, and that's because it's been the less dominant politic in our country, I think, in general. Um, and certainly, you know, I would encourage um, us to have more musical activism because it's one of the only ways that subversive ideas, I, any idea that uh, uh, contests the dominant power structure in any country, be that, be that on the left or the right, can be heard. And that's important in most of the time in most countries. And if I may um, give a quick shout out to the Cleveland Council on World Affairs um, briefly because they are uh, uh, an amazing organization and when I was working at the Rock Hall, they regularly brought in um, artists from uh, m several nations, mostly from the Middle East, um, to come to the United States to look at mid-sized mid cities and consider how arts are deployed here. So I've worked with, over the years, um, folks who teach puppet classes and in Turkey and, and theater folks in um, Jordan, among others, who are really looking to see how the arts function and work here. And, and that's a really um, a beautiful uh, example of artistic diplomacy on both sides with that kind of uh, intercultural communication. And I just, I, would, I felt like I would be remiss if I did share that because the uh, Cleveland Council on World Affairs has really done sort of extraordinary work also for the arts. They're not, they're not just the politics, but they're the politics and the arts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another question? Well, I, I did want to say thank you so much for being with us tonight. It, it's been a really exciting panel and I'm, I'm just disappointed we don't have more people in the audience for you because they're missing a great panel. Um, I'm, as an amateur military historian, I'm, I'm struck by stories I've read from the Civil War and from the First World War about how at holidays the bands from both sides would play uh, typically, you know, whether it was Christmas songs or, or Old Lang Syne or, or something like that. And, and the fact that our historians have chosen to convey these stories with the, the intensity that they have tells me that it, it certainly struck a note for them, that regardless of how much blood was shed, the, these two wars that in some ways, uh, one we thought would be the end of war for our country, one we thought would be the end of war for all time, would, you know, in, in some ways has been used as stories to help mend us, to help us see our, our commonalities and our, not our differences. So as, as we think about music as a tool for diplomacy, are, are there things, you know, that we, in looking forward, are there, are there things that do work? Because uh, uh, part of what I've heard from you is, is really a, you know, a, a story of exploitation, a story of one agenda versus another being appropriated of propaganda. But, you know, we, we also, so many of us want to see more of our military budget spent on other forms of power like diplomacy or intelligence or economics or education. Uh, so help me out here. If you were advising a president, maybe not this one, but a president, as to how we could better use music, what would you suggest that we do? And how does it become maybe part of the American story? It's a really great question. I'm glad you brought up the World War I thing, because I was going to 
absolutely asked that question before this panel was adjourned, but uh, the Christmas truce of 1914 is one of my personal favorite moments of human history. Christmas Eve, 8.30, um, the, the Allies start hearing the Germans singing Silent Night from their trenches across no man's land. Uh, they reply by start, they start singing the first Noel. There's a ceasefire Christmas Eve and the rest of Christmas Day. They get out of the trenches. There's reports of them playing soccer together. Um, they exchange drinks and cigars, and it's a really beautiful moment, and it's all kind of because of they heard song being exchanged between these two sides. But, yeah, thank you for bringing that up, but to the, to the actual question that was asked. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful question and a powerful question, and I think it's um, one of the things that I've found in, in, in the world is that there is such a mutual respect for musicianship and kind of anywhere you go. I, I play the flute um, and and it's funny because when I do take it places or when someone has something similar and I can make a sound on it, everyone's like, ooh. And, and then we can have these very long conversations and it's a really wonderful entry point. Um, but you mentioned spending some military money perhaps on other things such as, for example, education. Um, I would argue uh, education is almost always the answer. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old uh, who's one of the most <laughs> powerful 16-year-olds on this planet. Um, education, because, for ex you know, and I, I bring up her because it's, it's um, or I bring her up, excuse me, because, you know, recycling for us individually is slightly moot, but it's about educating. And I think the same thing goes for including music education and arts education in schools. Um, the Cleveland Metropolitan School District has over 100 schools, of which only four have official music programs. Um, and having education <laughs> and music education in our schools from an early age for absolutely everybody, not just Rocky River, but also Cleveland and also Baltimore and also all these other spaces, I think would make such a tremendous difference and such a tremendous impact in what has what comes later because that kind of access ties together families it ties together neighbors it promotes all the different things that the music and the arts do for the brain language acquisition and discipline and all that other great stuff that we all know and we can s recite a thousand times and yet we never give it the funding that it deserves and that goes with not just education for the students but teaching our teachers and giving them the tools paying them appropriately making sure those academic content standards if we have to stick by them include the arts because that is by far one of the most powerful tools that we can use anywhere. Sorry, I get super passionate about equitable access to education. <laughs> yes. uh, I would echo all of that, certainly in terms of equitable arts education in the U.S., uh, equitable education in the U.S. in general. You know, investing in our own education system actually is a solution to some of these problems because it certainly helps us to have an ever better educated uh, future population uh, that is of voting age. Uh, additionally, in, in terms of a real hard answer to your question, yes, shifting back funding towards the State Department, which has been hollowed out, re, uh, uh, I, I think probably well, ideally rolling back some of the Tillerson reorg, which is not going to happen, but finding a way to uh, support the staff that remains and recruit uh, future foreign service officers who will be committed to the role of diplomacy in the world uh, as opposed to funding, shifting more funding to uh, kinetic operations, I certainly uh, approve of. So I, I, I would agree, actually, with the notion of shifting more funding back towards intelligence gathering rather than um, military uh, operations. I would also point out um, 
and this is, you know, I guess more of a hard edge to things, but yeah, that tr Christmas truce was amazing. It's an amazing story of how uh, music communicates values and helps people come together. We also should think about how we historicize such things because the question might be, why do we tell that story? We tell that story because after World War II in particular, we wanted to make sure that Germany was not ostracized and could, could come back into the fold of civilized Western nations after we had bonded. Um, the fact is, if we had taken a different tack, we could have decided to you know, not tell that story and to ostracize all German music as being oppressive and, uh, and, and you know, um, horrible. But we didn't do that. And I think that's sort of an artifact of history in certain ways. So I just, I, I, I just worry sometimes that we take uh, uh, too strong a lesson from the way that we choose to cast history. I have to say that music is healing. It does b build bridges, and I think that's the one human element that we all share is, is music, and um, that's something that does <coughs> cross boundaries in so many different ways. As far as funding is concerned, and <coughs> I know that the State Department is actually now not just sending our cultural ambassadors abroad f with Western classical music, but also uh, emerging artists who are in um, our uh, Americana or uh, jazz and our typical American music as well. So I think not just the funding aspect, but how it's done, especially education, I think that really does make all the difference. What one sees, what one is is used to, when, what one has, uh, has, has an aspiration to do. <coughs> but I think it all goes back also to what does music mean to each one of us? What does it mean to all of us? I mean, can we live without music? Is there some, th we all have our preferences as far as what types of music we listen to. But uh, why is it that we listen to music? Why is it in our hearts? Why is it something that, like I said before, that goes beyond words? There's something powerful about music that yes, we should take response <coughs> responsibly, but it's also about making sure that you're able to connect with other people as musicians, we know that it's one thing to practice music in the practice room. It's, so, it's sort of like that one saying that we say, well, if a tree falls in the forest, did it actually happen? So we need audiences so that we can actually share that human element, and that's what I think it's what it's all about. That answer her question? I think that's a beautiful place to end. We ran through that hour really quickly. To answer your question, no, I couldn't live without music. I'm sure a lot of the other people in this room would feel the same way. Uh, thank you to the Happy Dog. Thank you to this uh, City Club. Thank you all the panelists. <laughs> this forum is adjourned. <laughs>